Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by Joe Aurelia, SVP of Operations at Cyware. Joe, how the heck are you? I'm doing really well today. Thank you, Oz. A pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you coming on. So there's so much I want to dive into, but I think we should start here. You work at a company called Cyware. Can you tell us a little bit about Cyware? Absolutely. We are a cybersecurity company. We are actually focusing on what's called our cyber fusion and collective defense. Essentially, we are the combination of SOAR, TIP, and IR, which together we help to eliminate silos between companies and we help to help you focus on your threat intelligence, manage your risks, get on the offensive, and help create a safer world. Wow. There's a lot there. And listen, I imagine operations, the scope of that must be really big at your company compared to some other companies. So I want to dive into that and learn a little bit about that. You've Describe yourself in our earlier conversations as a Swiss army knife of executive functions. What did you mean by that? Tell us a little bit about that. Personally, when you're trying to create an understanding of what you do and what you actually want to deliver from a value point of view, it's hard if you do more than one thing. So if you focus on, I'm an apple, I'm a banana, it's very easy to share that with the world. In operations, many of us, we do many things, right? We could be technology operations, people operations, revenue operations. So to try to help define to others the value a position like this can bring Swiss Army Knife came up. If you say a jack of all trades, people reply negative, master of none. If you say generalist, while a true definition, not everyone understands it yet. Let's give them another five or 10 years. So Swiss Army Knife just seemed like a fun way to put it. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a great description. And like I said, with the amount of things that fall under operations, it sounds like at your company, you really have to be super versatile and you have to be super skilled in a lot of different areas. And you've been with the company for quite a bit of time. It sounds like you were the first US hire as I looked through the company profile, it looks like you have operations in India, Europe, Canada, Singapore, Australia, Dubai. So as the first US hire, tell us about that. Like when you were reached out to by this company, this company doesn't have any operations here. They want to make you the first person here stateside. What was that conversation like and what drew you to that? It was a time of my professional career. I was looking for a change and I got introduced to the owner of this company here in the US. And as a first US hire, the interview process is entirely different, right? You're having many conversations, you're discussing strategy, you're discussing potential risks, what the future can bring, you're hype dreaming a little bit. And for me, with an engineering background, being able to flesh out that world and see what can we create together, what can we start and what can we flourish was, was very exciting. So the ask was large. It was a lot of things that they wanted to be accomplished. Did not know COVID was coming, that kind of threw a monkey wrench into things. But I like big challenges. I'm not the one you stick in a quarter and say, just make sure the light switch was on every day. I could do that. I like cleaning up big things and having lots of complicated pieces. So this kind of fit that bill. Yeah. What's the workforce supposed to size in the US now? We're probably around 70 or so, but we've been growing quite extensively. We've had growth in a number of different departments that never existed before. We're still creating new departments. So you're always going to see new things come out. Oh, I love that. And what has been the company growth overall globally since you joined? Since we joined, we've peaked out in the high 200s. So obviously that changes over time, but we've seen phenomenal people come through the doors. For me personally, I love seeing someone come in as individual contributor. They stay long enough. They go from that to manager, director, sometimes to an executive level. 
and you get to watch and say, I got to see that journey. You know, I got to see that person go from point A to point D and it's just nice to watch. Yeah. There's a couple of different areas I want to dive in here that kind of personally fascinate me. So I think the first one is I've been in a startup in 2011. We opened the company. Our company is in the high 200s ourselves now from an employee perspective. And one of the things that you learn in my role is that what got you here won't get you there, right? Sometimes the people that got you to 35, 40 million aren't the people to get you to 100, 200 million. You have described yourself as somebody that likes to build the guts of something, which when you first came on, you absolutely were doing. Now, there's real mass here. There's more employees, more functions, more everything. Are you somebody that can thrive in both of those environments? Do you have a preference there? Like, What's it like being somebody that was really building things? And I don't want to say you're supporting and maintaining now. I'm sure there's still growth, but it's got to be a different role than when you first came on. I began life in very large companies, right? AT&T, IBM, you can't get much larger. And you go to the startup where you're on the other side of the fence. So it puts you there somewhere in the middle. So yes, we're not deploying 20 apps a month anymore that are new for the company. We're not doing those type of fresh things. But you get to switch your brain to the other end. So I have all these applications out there in my world. The forest is huge. They're all doing their job. How do I make them talk together more efficiently? How do I begin to get the data that I've been harvesting for the last few years internally to the company? How do I get that data turned into intelligence? How do I answer questions the business has not asked yet? So you just get to do different things. So you're creating, you're just creating different stuff. One of the things that I've told people before is that when you're making a change or company to company, whatever it may be, the jump from industry to industry, right? Sometimes that can be difficult, but I think that's pretty manageable in most cases. I've seen a lot of success cases there, no question. Even going from, say, a function to a different function, like I've seen people go from technology to marketing or sales to marketing or HR to operations, whatever it may be, there's still a little bit more to deal with there, but that can be manageable. I've always said that I think the biggest jump that people make is from an enterprise company to a startup. Because what has made you successful in working in those very large environments is vastly different than what you do in a startup. And I've seen it in my own company. I've seen it in companies that we've worked with. It really intrigues me that you were able to make that change and that transformation. Was that seamless? Did that take time? Did you always know that you should have been a startup? Because like you said, you were in some of the biggest companies in the world with AT&T and IBM. Did you always know you had a calling to be in something where you were building it from the ground up? I honestly don't think the plan is written for you ahead of time. I think kind of life just goes a certain way. I will say from a family point of view, I've always been working since a very young age, right? We won't tell drivers how early it was, <laughs> but you got to learn how to deal with people, how to have conversations, how to manage things. So that whole running your own company was always been printed in the brain. Operationally speaking, no one goes to school to do operations, right? Not to that sense. We don't pop out of college and say, we're going to start doing these type of activities. I think it just kind of happened to, to come together. You had a few very strong technical positions. You moved into a few management positions. We've done consulting alongside other work. And you just start to see, as you start to understand what you're accomplishing, is you're marrying technology, operations, strategy, leadership, and then operations is that encapsulation of those items. I think it's a really interesting point that you make. And listen, let's just do it. Even if child labor is listening to this right now, we're going to put it out there. What <laughs> was the first job and how old were you? I've been sharing this part publicly, but I worked with my dad, loved working with my dad, never regret that. It was super fun. Since I was five... I would be doing home improvement with him since I was five till college when I started working for the actual university and I was doing uh, web design for them on the LAMP stack. I had others make sure that compensation was delivered. I had HR in my corner early on. Did you classify it as allowance on your tax return at that age? <laughs> I love it. I'm not going to ask a question I'm not willing to answer. My first job, 14 years old, working for the YMCA in Chandler, Arizona as a basketball referee. So that was my first job. Nice. And then I had an inglorious run of many jobs, including bagel shop manager, sports hat store, Ross dress for less, shaved ice, and all led me to where I'm at today. So listen, I am big on getting started early. And actually, one of the things I'll bring up that I find interesting is that I was listening to a pod with 
famous entrepreneur, Naveen Jain, and he was talking a lot about how he raised his kids. And he said something fascinating. He said that rather than try to bifurcate your work time and your children time and make sure you give your children all the time, bring your children into the work, show them your obsession. And one of the things that he said he did was he would bring his six-year-old son to networking events and like even meetings and board meetings. And this is obviously very extreme, but what he was talking about is what you just said. He was putting his son in a position to talk to adults, meet adults, right? Build these really core skills that lead you down a really professional success. And you know what? His son just opened up a company called Built that's valued at a billion dollars. So he was doing something right. I'm totally in agreement with you around exposing your children to that. And it sounds like you getting going at a young age has led you to where you're at in your career now. Fair to say? I think it's very fair to say. Honestly, I question, you know, should we be starting like a safer LinkedIn for kids so they have the right connection count by the time they graduate college? Are we at that point yet? Holy shit. You just had an idea right there. Jackie, write that down. Let's go get the IP on that. I love it. Kids LinkedIn. I did bring it up first though. It's on recording. Hey, it's a partnership. It's 50-50, okay? Oh, okay, okay. I love it. I love it. Now, if I was clever, I would think of a really snappy name, but I'll have to come back after the pod. Maybe I'll put it in the comments when we post this. So next question I have is, we have an office in India, has 150 people. We had an office in Colombia. We've made placements in over 48 countries. Why am I telling you all this? Because I've learned that country to country, sometimes even region within countries, there's so much nuance that you have to learn. There's so many different ways that they view employment and work and the way that you communicate, right? I'm interested because you're working with such a geographically dispersed workforce. How do you manage all that different cultural nuance and the different things that come with being able to run operations in multiple countries like I listed earlier? Outside of all the legal and HR things that you have to learn, I think the first part is just respecting those differences. And that's cool. Let's understand what is normal in that area. It doesn't have to be what's normal here, but what is correct in each area and understanding how that works. How do we communicate well together? Understanding what that employment law footprint looks like. Are we using the right documentation, the right leave policies? We use different terminology in different countries. So making sure that's all kosher from a paper point of view. And then once all that is done and you have the folks hired in different places, what can we do commonly speaking to bring folks together? What kind of events would make sense to have the company as a whole sort of unite? It's a challenge. There's lots of different time zones and lots of different focus areas. And I think it's a continual learning thing. I think it's the perfect answer. I think that you continually get better at it. You also continually learn things. Even though you could be running teams for a long time, there's individuals regionally who focus on more intimate matters. There's always something new. That's unique. I didn't know that. This unique situation happened. What's it in that area? But you use your partnerships. You talk to recruiting agencies, lawyers, counsels, accountants. You use your network to understand what you can and cannot do. And then you bring it back and work it into your business. Yeah. Do you ever travel to these different locations? Do you go meet them in person or has it been mostly remote? If COVID didn't happen, then yes, I'm pretty confident I would have been out there. We had that lined up. So not at the moment, but we do live in a world where I've got 10 different web conferencing apps grudgingly, and you just get very used to doing business that way. So I think it's great in person. I honestly think that you can accomplish more. I remember the days of a younger Joe in a room with whiteboards all around you. And you can just architect to your heart's content. You had 20 people in the room. You're all speaking the same language and knock things out. No matter how good our technology is, you can't get that same exact intimacy. You get close, you get good. But just being in the same room and having that mind trust together, it's hard to replicate. Yeah. And listen, we've talked about this ad nauseum. It's obviously a big topic, like working remote, being able to manage people remote. We, during COVID, went into a all remote situation. And then in 2022, we went back to office, but in a hybrid way. We have a very unique schedule in terms of the timings. We're trying to avoid the commute. We want people to be home for dinner with their family if they want that. And then we also have multiple days a week where people are working from home. I think 
there is value. I don't think I'm saying anything too hot takey here. There's definitely value being in person, right? There's definitely things from a collaboration perspective, a culture perspective, a development perspective that are much helped by being in person. But I think what COVID taught all of us, including some of the most ardent supporters of being in the office nine to five every day, is that you can manage remotely. You have to be more intentional. You have to maybe change your style a little bit, but you can do it. You can be effective. And quite frankly, sometimes you'll get more productivity. In fact, what we noticed during COVID is that people were more productive than ever, but they were burning out at a much higher rate because sometimes they'd be sitting, and credit to the MSH employees, they'd be sitting at their desk from eight to eight and maybe not taking a lunch. And then it's like, oh man, you see them the next day and they're not even the same person. And so you have to actually be way more intentional in managing on people and how focused they are on those screens if you're working remote. Do you agree with that? Is that you see some of the same things? I do. I mean, we've created our own problem there, right? We've enabled ourselves with so many excellent applications to be able to work wherever we want that I don't really need to know where you are. As long as you're doing your work and you're functional, having a conversation, do I really care if it's 3 a.m. in the morning where you are or 3 p.m. in the morning if we're getting our job done? So we've enabled ourselves to walk down that road. It is hard for certain people to separate that work and professional function. I think that over time, people might get there, but it is important to draw that line, have that healthy life, have that work life, keep certain things separate. And some of them might be working in a separate room. This is my work room versus my home room. Separating the rules and responsibilities, taking a walk during lunch, having a conversation during the day or getting a coffee, but not sitting at your desk while having it. And that's really up to the employee. The company can't force it. We can't mandate you to breathe. We want you to. We want you to relax. But I think everyone needs to see what works best for them, for their bodies, for their mind, and kind of marry that into their work life. Yeah. One of the things that I think stood out to me about COVID was I didn't realize how much getting ramped up. I was doing driving into the office on my commute and how much decompressing I was doing on my way home before I got back to my family. Because when you're at home, it's simple as closing the computer. And then all of a sudden, like you're still like in work mode or still in screen mode. And so that took a little bit of adjustment. And so I value the time I get to listen to podcasts, higher learning, or talk to somebody that I haven't talked to in a little bit. But yeah, and that was something that I had to figure out when I was working from home exclusively because It's just sometimes you have to turn off your mind from that work mindset. And I got four kids. Like You got to give your family that time. And sometimes you have to be very intentional about, I'm ready to move into a different part of focusing on my personal life and my home life. Just think of what we've done. Imagine your average day. If your meetings are on average 15 to 30 minutes, you can have up to 18 to 20 meetings a day. You're constantly context switching your brain. There's 20 different projects, 20 different people, conversations. And then to say, okay, at this time I stop, at the next time I'm family guy again, The brain was only designed to do certain things. It is a hard shift to just instantly swap like that. So that decompression time, I can see value in how that could be missed. If I didn't know you were an operations guy before, that answer right there would have told me everything, the way you just (laughs) broke down the meetings and the potential capability and capacity. I love it. All right, listen, you got to be a professional podcast guest because you just set me up with a great segue. I want to talk about you were in New York up until 2020, and now you're in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area of North Carolina. So my first question is, Is this kind of the standard story in mid-2020 where you realized you didn't have to be in an office and you're like, I'm moving south? We just looked around. uh, We had a little one and was in that area of the world for a while. And there's certainly positives of every state in the US, right? We just were looking for a change. This area looked very attractive. And to be honest, it's very nice. It's very calming. I feel like there's more outdoor things to do. There's more trails. It's just a different pace, but it's a beautiful area. So very happy. Yeah, Joe, I got to tell you, I don't think I'm breaking any news to you. You talk fast. You very much got a New York set of mind, and I do too. I'm constantly thinking, how has that adjustment gone for you? I know, are things a little bit slower in rally? Is that a generalization I'm making, or how have you adjusted culturally? People are still people. We do things. There's all the same things you do in any state. I just think the feel you have 
while going places, while walking on the street, while driving. We're all doing the same amount of things, but we're doing it with less stress. We're all working on jobs in the same states we were in beforehand, right? It's not like the job changed, not like the people changed, just as less stress. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. Listen, I'm totally with you on that. I'm sitting here in South Florida and looking out into a beautiful day in the ocean. It's very hot outside, but it's a very beautiful view. But I will tell you this, our company started in South Florida and I love this area and our company grew here. But then when we opened up the office in New York and I started visiting there and I started hiring people there and meeting clients there, it was almost like I was adopted by Florida. And then I found my real parents when I went to New York, just because the style of work there and the assertiveness and the get shit done attitude, it really fit me. And so we've been lucky that we've been able to grow our presence out there over the past five, six, seven years. I just love that area. I'll ask this, can you get a good slice in the rally area? We don't have enough time for that conversation, my friend. <laughs> I've gone gluten-free since that time. So that's a little bit of a challenge. When I first moved here, I would go to a place, I'll say, can I have a slice and a drink or whatever? And like 12 minutes. I'm like, well, 12 minutes for what? Like 12 minutes for the slice. So it, slicing isn't as popular in certain areas. There are areas here that have slices, but it's not like every single pizzeria you go to has a slice. You have to know specifically which ones to go to. Some do, and they're great, but you got to know where to go. So if you're rushing meeting the meeting, you have to know your spots. I love it. I love it. All right, listen, this podcast is about hiring. It's what I'm obsessed with. I'm passionate about it. I love talking about it. I love learning from different people. Fair to say that over the course of your career, you've been involved with at least hundreds of interview processes and hires? Operationally speaking, I keep track. So probably approaching 500 numbers. So I've had more interviews than I had planned to do in my life. I love that. We're talking 10,000 hours. I can do the math there. Getting close. All right. So let's start here. One sentence overall hiring philosophy, something you'd say. You're trying to determine skills aside, do you want to talk to that person for your 40 or X hours a week and have a conversation and not get tired of it? Mm, I love that. Now, does that change if they are in a different location globally or is that the standard for you, anyone you hire anywhere? I think it's standard because no matter what you do, whether you're talking in one meeting a week or 10 meetings or you're close, you're not close from a team point of view, you have to work together. So you have to be able to get along. You have to be able to collaborate and have great conversations. So if you feel that you're going to have a tremendous amount of friction in that conversation, or that individual may not be able to have that global mindset where they can hop between countries and still have great conversations, there will just be too much negative rubbing between teams and individuals. And that sets up things for a disaster. Yeah. You know what? It sounds simple, but we do the same thing here. We call it the car trip test. Like we'd be willing to jump in a car with this person for three or four hours yes. and have that car ride. Would you be wanting to like run out the door the minute that car ride ended? And so that is something that we think about. Skills are important. Behavioral attributes are important. Cultural fit's important. But also I want our people to feel like when they wake up in the morning and they go to work, they're excited to do that. And you know how you do that? It's not ping pong tables. It's not free lunch. It's, do I like the people I work with? Do I respect the people I work with? Do I feel good and excited and engaged around going around being around the people I want to work with? So that's such a big component of it. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the sauce when it comes to pedigree or experience or worked at X company. So I think that's a great call out by you. Memorable interviews. If I tell you to think of one off the top of your head, is there any that comes to mind? Could be good, could be bad. Don't need to name any names. Maybe you were interviewing or you were interviewing someone. With that many, I definitely have a few. I was interviewing one person and I asked about this particular technology and they said, I don't know it. 
and I say, well, I don't understand. It's highlighted on your resume. And they say, you wrote it a few times in the JD. Oh, so they just came right out and said, they didn't even catch themselves. Okay. With AI, there's more manipulation happening with that more than ever. How did they even get to? Were you the first interview or what? Did somebody screen them or? Earlier on, there wasn't a talent team. So I just kept swapping hats. Now we're fortunate we grew a talent team. We have many more individuals. But earlier on, I would interview most people. All right. Million dollar question. What happened right after that? Did you end the interview? What happened? You can't just end an interview these days. You have to play it out respectfully. So I don't know if we're in a society where you can end something that fast. So you just have a conversation, keep it going. You just understand the inevitability of it may not be the best. Yeah. And that's our podcast. Thanks for joining, Joe. No, I wouldn't end it like that. You can't do that in this society is what I hear. I failed the car trip test. (laughs) No, buddy. I'm coming to you. We're going to drive down to South Florida. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask prospective hires? I gave that away. The magic sauce is gone. Well, listen, hopefully somebody listens to that and then they are able to give you the answer you want and you hire somebody great. I like to know that if I meet them for only a short period of time and I can only remember one thing about them, what's that one thing professionally that they never want me to forget? What's just the one thing on my paper I should write down? Okay. Now let's say I'm interviewing you and I ask you that. What are you going to say? Persistent. Persistent. Okay. And how does that manifest itself just in terms of just dogged pursuit of your goals and objectives or? From an operational point of view, we're the ones who have to do all the undefined items, right? We're the kitchen sink and kitchen sinks always change. So it could be, this is one thing that no one has value in, but you know, if you don't do it, you have a massive tax fine or a massive violation or something. And you're persistent to get things done. You keep lots of lists. You keep track of all the little things that don't seem to have any value, but you know that if you let them neglect, they'll mothball into this massive monster and you never want that monster to come to life. So you're persistent in keeping track of things and asking questions and trying to get results. That's the way I mean it. I really like that. All right. Listen, we've all missed on people we've hired. All right. There's nobody who's a hundred percent in terms of people they've hired at success rate. So when you miss on somebody, can you think back on what might've happened or what you might look back with regret or something you wish you would have asked in those situations? I think the interview time sometimes is too short. Sometimes you don't have enough time to properly talk with someone. I think in in some cases, if you were able to do an in-person interview, have that lunch together with someone, I think a lot of those things can come out. It's difficult. Looking back, sometimes you might question how the entire stack went. Did you have the right people interview them? Did you have that 30, 60, 90 set up before the interview? Did you fully understand their function? Did they meet into that function? Are they individuals who are okay coming in and not having a team by themselves? Are they an individual who can create a team, but be alone at the beginning. So I think over time, we all learn in our careers and our profession, right? You begin to ask a different set of questions and start to dig into a different way to analyze how that person would behave in a startup environment. Are they comfortable knowing that they have a question? They're Googling it. They're learning how to learn. They're growing themselves. If their first answer to looking something up is going into the company database, that's not going to fly. There is no database. It's really your questions, I think, change to better understand if there's a match. Love it. So let's flip this to the candidate side real quick. I think one of the things that, and every candidate's been there, maybe you've gone through this, right? Where you interview, it goes great, you take the job, and then two weeks in, you're like, oh shit, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And so it's really important to give a realistic job preview, I think, in an interview. What do you do from that perspective? How do you have people understand the good, bad, the indifferent about what it's like to work with you, work with your company? And what do you do around managing that candidate experience so they walk away knowing what they're getting into if you get offered from your company? I like to convey to with individuals how we'll communicate going forward. We're going to have very honest conversations. We're not going to really sugarcoat things. We're going to work together. I don't really have a care what my title is versus your title. We're solving something. Are we contracts? Are we rev ops? Are we IT? Are we people? We're just solving something together. So we're going to work together. 
And that's how I like to proceed with my teams. We're going to communicate. We're going to see what their priorities are. So I let them know they're part of a larger team that's working. I think that's important to convey from that point of view. I also like to convey that even though we're all remote, we're all just a slack away. You don't need permission to talk to someone. You don't need a card to go talk to someone else. Anyone could talk with anybody, have conversations, grow, share, network. To let them know it's more of an open community from that point of view. You slack in the directory as your friend. Yeah, that's really good. All right, last hiring questions. In terms of the amount of hiring you do right now, what do you do to keep track? Do you have a technology that you leverage? Do you take notes? Do you use an Excel? How do you manage your hiring process from a technology perspective? In the early days, we didn't have anything. We then moved to an ATS or two. So we have an ATS at the moment, which works well. So everything stays in there, which saves us sincerely. For me personally, when I'm interviewing someone, I just use Apple Notes. I have it on the side. I apologize before I say, look, I'm typing, I'm not slacking. I'm just taking notes. I don't do paper. And I just take really detailed notes while typing. I just have a shorthand I use. Once the conversation is done, I'll just do a quick read. I'll see if anything I missed, anything I want to add. I'll make a summary, a yay or nay. And that goes into the ATS system and that will fall down through whoever else is next. And we all can share and collaborate on those notes. Yeah. So tell me honestly with the ATS, does it guide you in any way in terms of the hiring? Is it more just record keeping and data keeping? How do you view the tool and its usage? I think if you were to spend more time, you could probably have tools assist you to a higher extent. At the moment, I think some tools at certain stages of the game really are more of that database of records, so to speak, right? They're helping guide and structure the data. I think as you grow, if you are much larger than we are now and you have just an unfathomable quantity of data flowing through the system, I think you're going to need the tool to help make your decisions for you because you can't humanly go through everything. So I think when you get to a higher level, you would rely on other tools to help you parse things and be that second brain. And unfortunately, may make some decisions that aren't correct, but hopefully make more decisions that are on the positive side. Now you're just throwing red meat at me. I call an ATS a passive data repository. I'd like to think if somebody can actually create a software that's like a co-pilot for you and help you make better decisions, I would think that that could be a game changer. So there's a lot of work to do in that area. We'll see if that's coming anytime soon. All right, let's move on to a different part of the conversation. I want to learn a little bit about a day in the life of your job. Now, I know it's got to be a lot of meetings, but maybe let me ask it this way. When you go home at night, and it sounds like it could just be across the hall, but when you're done for the day and you feel like you've had a really productive day, what happened that day? What are the things that keep you feeling good about that you got done what you need to get done for the day? For me, productive means my inbox is relatively close to inbox zero, which I try. I don't always get there, but I have a very religious email process I go through. But I think when you're able to see things move forward, when you're able to see arduous efforts be somewhat completed, that's positive. When you're seeing change happening in the right direction, that's positive. Whether it took a day to do it or it took a year to do it, those are things that shows that you're moving in the right direction, that the goals you're trying to hit are somewhat being achieved. Those would be positive for me. Yeah. Good. I love it. Is there anything you're working on right now that you're super excited, super juiced about? I want to go back to what I was sharing earlier is that, yeah, we're not buying tens of softwares a week anymore, but looking at the stack and trying to re-architect what's there. How do we get the best value out of things? How do we answer data, create reports, intelligence, dashboards? How do we consolidate and combine the information within a company? That's relatively exciting because they're able to use the results of the team's incredibly hard work over the last many years and move that up a level. So you're not purchasing, you're not creating large consulting budgets, but you're just using what you have in a smarter way and then rewarding people for those efforts. I really like that. One of the things that we like to do on this show is we go look at some old LinkedIn posts and bring them up to you and say, what did you mean here? What did you think about this? So I found this one interesting in particular. You said the most important KPIs, I know every COO I know, every operations person I know, 
loves their KPIs. It's probably one of the most important things. But you have a post here that says key performance indicators crossed out. And it says KPIs, keep people informed, keep people involved, keep people inspired, keep people interested. Why did that resonate with you? In certain companies, certain sizes, KPIs have the point that I'm not saying not to have them, but having them without the other elements doesn't get the mission solved. So I can have the best KPIs in the world. I can have the most glorious spreadsheets. I can have the most beautiful charts. If the teams don't understand the reason you're doing that, if they're not emotionally bought in, if they're not enthralled by it, they're never going to be accomplished anyway. So what's the point of having these glorious numbers that you're looking at if you're never going to get there? I'd rather have a less than perfect system, but actually achieve it. So instead of chasing a hundred shiny objects, let's chase the 15 that we can accomplish and have some reach goals, but let's all get there together. So we're all fighting for the same thing. A lot of wisdom in that comment. All right, we're going to leave it right here. Last question. If you had one nugget of career advice that you want to offer to people early in their career that maybe you didn't have early in your career that you know now, what would it be? I have more conversations with people who are not doing what you're doing and just talk. Just talk, ask what they're doing, learn from them, learn different styles, just share, just talk, just make friends and talk professionally. Okay. So that sounds like something that evolved for you over the course of your career. Is there a specific conversation or relationship that comes to mind when you say that? Or is that something that has really helped you grow? If you're in sales, right? You're talking all the time. You're having lots of conversations. That's a different animal. If you begin on the engineering side, you're usually with the engineers, right? You're not really having those conversations. But as you expand and you want to move on to the business side and you want to be responsible for, for building and growing and leading, you need to have network of networks. You need to be able to reach out and partner with other individuals. And that requires initiating a conversation. So I think the earlier people can create those relationships professionally and have that cadre of people who they can call professional friends, I think they will all grow together at a faster fashion by using each other to move forward. I really love that. I think a lot of people look for mentors who are in the same function they're in and have a similar career path. Obviously, you're working with your team. There's similarities and commonalities there. Being able to get exposed to different areas that you might not always touch gets you smarter about your business, makes you a more effective employee, and it's just more enriching and you learn more, right? And you become more well-rounded yourself. I can imagine some of these conversations have led you to be a better operations leader. Either you're talking to somebody in HR, or you're talking to somebody in finance or whatever it may be. So I think that's great advice. And I think it's one that everybody should take heed of. Even something like this podcast, right? Maybe someone is not doing hiring or operations work remotely. They listen to this podcast, they spend a few minutes of their life and they learn a whole new set of things they never knew before. Zero cost, zero effort. I'm going to tell you what, there has been some gold in this one. So I hope if they're going to listen to one of them, they listen to this one. Joe, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on and look forward to this being released and getting some more commentary on, on how great it was. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Talk to you later. You too. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.